And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job. I love the book of Job. Of course, I love all the books of the Bible. But there are certain ones that have opened up in such a special way to me and, and helped me in my life. And the book of Job is one of them. And of course, we're on a series of the vision of God. And when you take these books of the Bible and you realize that this is not a book about Job. This is a book about God. And when you look and see God in this, it changes everything. And I'd like to show you God through the book of Job and help all of us as we try to pray that we get a high vision of God. Look with me, if you wouldn't mind, the book of Job in chapter number 1. The book of Job in chapter number 1. And notice with me, starting at verse number 1. The book of Job, chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That, perf- that man was perfect and upright, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. And his substance was also of t- seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, and every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hath not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath uh, on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and the substance is increased in the land." But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself uh, put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell among the camels, and carried them away, yea, and the slain of the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down on the ground and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord give, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Job in chapter 1? And notice with me in Job chapter 1 and verse 20, the phrase in uh, verse 20 that he fell upon the ground and worshipped. He fell upon the ground and worshipped. And with this, I want to tell you the story of Job. And that's what I want to title this, The Story of Job. And maybe if you're in the habit of subtitling messages, not only will I hit the story of Job, but I want to bring the question that the book of Job asked. And by the way, I'll get into this in a second. It's not why the righteous suffer. That's not asked. The question is, is God worthy of our worship when bad times come? Is God worthy of our worship when bad times come? Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as I come up to you, Lord, I I recognize my absence of strength. And the sickness that I've had has taken everything out of me. Lord, there's nothing left for me to give. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to be my voice. You're going to have to be my thoughts. You're going to have to be my strength. You're going to have to be my all in all. These good folks came out in a cold Wednesday night and they deserve to hear from you, Lord. I'm asking that you would just open up things in a special way. There's so much in this book, and Lord, I can't hit it all. You teach me, you show me what I'm supposed to hit tonight, what I'm supposed to put an emphasis in, exactly how everything's supposed to lay out. And that you would do it in such a way that your name would be honored and glorified through it all. Fill me with your precious spirit, Lord, and you just do a work. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Many people approach the book of Job, and they ask the question, why do the righteous suffer? That's a common way of looking at the book of Job. But may I rebuttal that and say, that question is never asked, and it is definitely not answered in the book of Job. The book of Job is not a book about Job. It's a book about God. Job is not on trial in this book. God is. Job is the, is the evidence. He, he's, the, he's the piece of evidence that's going to determine whether God is truly worthy to be worshipped in the bad times as well as the good times. He's the evidence that is being reviewed and examined. How would you like to be an evidence piece to see if God is good or not? How would you like to be the trial, whether to prove if God is still worthy of worship or not? 
With that in mind, let's examine this book and we're going to survey the entire book here. And we're going to highlight some things. First of all, I want to introduce you to the man. I want to introduce you to the man. Notice with me in Job chapter 1 and verse number 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. This idea of perfect has the idea of complete or whole, and the idea here, he's spiritually mature. So this man is perfect and upright. That means he does things right. And one that feareth God, that means he has a respect for God and he he doesn't want to disappoint God, and escheweth evil. That word askew is a geometric term. It has the idea of going away. So you have a straight line, a line that separates from it and goes a different direction is askew. So basically whenever he sees evil, he turns from it. And some people see evil and they go straight towards it. He goes the other direction. He escheweth evil. When he sees it, he turns his direction. So this is the character that he is. Notice as it goes on, it describes more of his character. And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. And his substance was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. That would be a very great household if you had all that, right? Where would you fit them all? Now remember, back in these days, this, this happened shortly after the flood. This is a, probably about the patriarch time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's alive probably in this type of era. And people didn't wet, measure wealth by how much bills they had or how many coins they had. They measured wealth by the livestock they had. And Job was one of the wealthiest people here. This is why the Bible is listing how many he had, because it's showing how wealthy and how influential he was. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. As I said, it's showing how wealthy, how how. Uh, influential he is. Verse number four, and his sons went and feasted in their houses and every one his day and sent and called their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. So what happened is they had a family reunion and each day they would go to a different brother's house and fellowship and have a good time just having a good family reunion, catching up. And verse five, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt sacrifices according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, remember the setting. This is before the Mosaic Law. and This is definitely before the New Testament. They had no set tradition. There's no Bible written at this time. So all they have is the tradition that Adam and Eve had about sacrificing about what Noah did he sacrificed and this man is trying to be the spiritual leader of his household and while they're having a family reunion he feels burden because he says just in case my kids have sinned I'm going to do a burnt offering to God as the head of my household and I'm going to say God please forgive my son here and Lord here's another offering please forgive this son and Lord here's another offering please forgive this son And what he's doing is he's taking the spiritual leadership home. He's investing in his sons and his daughters to make sure they are right with God in the standing, both God's side and the children's side. This is the type of man that he is. Not only does he have the wealth, but he also has the influence and the spiritual maturity to care about his own children and their standing with God. So this is the man. This is who he is. He's a righteous man. Which brings us 
from the view of what's going on on earth and we get another view of what's going up in heaven. And at this time, we see the discussion. The second thing I want to show you, the discussion. So, we see Job and who he is. Verse number 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was um, also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Where comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down it. Let me pause here and just do a theological thing. Satan is not in hell. Satan is on this earth. You know that it actually talks about in the book of Revelation that Satan has a city. Now back then I think it was Smyrna. Imagine what Satan's city is today. But Satan actually has a headquarters. He has a physical body. He does. And he can't be everywhere at once. He has to have a headquarters somewhere. And so he's reporting into God. Aren't you glad that Satan has to report to God? And he's reporting into God, and he, God says, where you been? He says, I've just been walking through and fro the earth, exploring, just seeing everything that's here. Verse number 8. Now, before Satan could even bring an objection, God even knows what's on Satan's heart. And so this conversation seems out of order, but that's because Satan already knows what Satan is going to say, or God already knows what Satan's going to say, and so God interrupts Satan before he could say something, and already is explaining what's going on. Verse number 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Now, we went from a conversation, Satan, where you been? I've been walking up and down the earth. Hast thou considered my servant Job? Well, in a human idea, we wouldn't have, we'd have a disconnect. But Satan already knew what he was thinking about, so he jumped stuck right in mid-conversation. And the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none in him in the earth, perfect and upright, one that feareth God and eschewth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth, not, doth Job fear God for naught? And he goes on to explain. Let me paraphrase if you wouldn't mind. Job is being used as evidence. And God says, Satan, have you considered Job? What is he considering Job? Because Satan has an accusation against God. He wants to say this. God, the only reason why Job is saying you're good, God, the only reason why Job is blessing your name is because you blessed him. Look at what you've done. You put a hedge of protection around him. You blessed his hands. Everything he's touched is multiplied and increased. But he, Satan tells God, you go ahead and take everything that he has He'll curse you to his face. You go ahead and you make him miserable. You take away your blessings and you watch this human being. See, God, you're not worthy of worship. As soon as something bad happens to this human, he won't say you're good anymore. He'll start complaining. And God says, all right, put him to the test. Just don't touch his body and don't kill him. But everything that he has, you go ahead and do something with Satan. Satan says, all right. And so he goes. So, once again, Job is not on trial. God is. Satan has accused God of not being worthy of worship at all times. Satan has says, God, the only time people worship you is when things are going well. But you let them hit some hard times. You take away their finances. You take away the things that they have. You take away their family. You mess things up. And they'll complain and they'll curse you. 
He says, watch it. And God says, all right, let's use Job then. Let's put him to the test. And let's see if I'm worthy of worship by this man's actions. Don't you think Job is glad he doesn't know what's going on? That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Now, Satan goes to the third thing I want to show you as we do this survey. By the way, there's more than three points, just to give you a heads up. We see the loss. We see the loss. So what happens in verse number 13? And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking and wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the ouses feeding beside them. And the Sabians came to them and took them away. So basically what occurs, Job is having a good day. He's enjoying everything. Everything's going well. And one of the servants come and says, Bad news! These group of bandits came and they took all the asses. They took all the oxen. They took them away. And they killed all the servants who were watching them. And only I escaped. And just as soon as he gets that report... Another guy comes in and says, guess what? There was, um, came another, the fire of God has come from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. So the first group was killed by bandits. Bandits came and took the swords and killed everything. Now, what kind of bandits are they? They killed the sheep and they, or not the sheep, they killed the oxen and they killed the asses. They killed them. There wasn't anything to retrieve. They killed them. Then they came and a fire from heaven came. Now this isn't bandits, this is fire from heaven. Came down and destroyed the sheep and destroyed the servants except for the one. Then a third servant came right after that while he was yet speaking and said, The Chaldeans came out, three bands and fell upon the camels and carried them away. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry, and the Sabians took them away and the camels were taken away. Forgive me. And um, they took them away and killed, every, killed all the servants. Now that's the third servant. Now a fourth servant has come and says, I'm sorry to tell you, your kids are dead. A tornado came and hit their house. And instead of going to Oz, it just collapsed on themselves. And they all died. Can you imagine what it would be like to have report after report after report in just a couple minutes time to hear that all of your possessions are gone. All of your wealth is gone. All of your family is gone. And to hear it within just a couple minutes time. How would you react? You probably wouldn't do in jumping jacks. You probably weren't uh, very enthusiastic. But notice what Job did during this time. Notice he heard all of this In verse 20, And Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head, this is a sign of mourning, and fell upon the ground and worshipped. As soon as he heard that, he ripped his mantle, which is a sign in the the ancient world of public outrage, of, of public mourning, of something wrong. And then he shaved his head to humble himself and he fell on the ground and he worshipped God. He said, twenty verse 21, And naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now, remember, God's on trial. 
So look at all these bad things that happened. And what did Job do? Did he say, you know, that stupid God, I knew it was too good to last. What he did, he says, God's still good and God is still right. That didn't make Satan happy at all because he tried to accuse God. And now the first round is gone and Job, this human, had all of his possessions, all of his wealth, all of his family taken away and he's still saying God is good and God is right. Which shows us the next thing, the appeal. The appeal. No good court can go with an appeal, right? Without an appeal. So here's the appeal. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And he comes up and the Lord says, Where have you been at? And then after that, the Lord interrupts him and says, Has thou considered my servant Job? He already knows what's on Satan's heart, knows he's going to bring up this conversation again, so God already brings it up. Has thou considered my servant Job? And he says, Guess what? He's maintained his integrity, in verse 3, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. He says, There wasn't a reason for me to take away all that stuff, and you had me go and move against it, and he still worshipped me. Verse 4, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Now once again, Job's not on trial, God's on trial. The question is, is God worthy to be worshipped when bad things happen? So Job is being used again, and Satan says, fine, you took away his possessions, you took away his family, you took away his health, and he didn't break. But you give him physical pain, you touch his body, and you watch this man curse you to your face. And God says, just don't kill him, but you can do whatever you want. Isn't that a horrible thing to have Satan be turned over to do whatever he wants to you? And by the way, Job has done nothing wrong. So we see this, which brings us to the next thing, the disease. So verse number seven. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to his crown. And he took a pot shard to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. So here's Job. He's got a disease. And part of this disease has boils. Imagine big old fat blisters that are filled up with a pus, a white, milky substance. And what happens is those blisters burst open, exposing that sensitive skin underneath it. You have that pus that is leaking over, so much that he has to take broken pieces of pottery just to kind of scrape the stuff off. Now, the Bible goes on, and in the book of Job, we get more of a description. He can't eat. He hasn't eaten in such a long time. You could see his ribs. He turns gray and ashen because of the disease and the lack of food. He, he, he's, he's dehydrated. He's got this. He can't touch. I mean, it's from the bottom of his foot to the crown of his feet. He can't touch anything without stinging pain. And he's sitting there and he's hurting and he's in much pain. And he still hasn't cursed God yet. But... As you probably know, Satan is a cheater. We haven't... This is the last time we see of Satan, but he is not done. He begins to work on the background because he starts 
trying to do things in the background to push Job over the edge. Again, we call it cheating, but Satan is doing everything he can. So we had the disease. So the first thing Satan tries to do here is he brings in the wife. Brings in the wife. Notice in verse number 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now, we'll get into Job's wife in just a second. But I want to remind you, take a little pause, that a wife can build up a man or she can tear him down. A wife is so necessary. The Bible says the man's job is to love the wife unconditionally. To love, that's the man's job to love the wife. A wife has to feel loved. By the way, men, you have to learn how your wife understands love. There's different ways of understanding love. Some ladies need to be touched. Some ladies need uh, words said to them. Some ladies need things bought for them. Some ladies uh, just need praise in front of others. You must learn to understand how your wife understands love Otherwise, you can say, I love you all you want, but if she doesn't understand love that way, it does no good. She doesn't think, she doesn't believe it. You have to find how she loves your wife. Now, on the flip side, men have to love their wife unconditionally. Wives, men need unconditional respect. That's in the book of Ephesians 2, that same passage. If a man does not feel respected, he cannot be the man he ought to be. A lady can say, well, wait a second. You know how hard he is? Do you know how hard it is to respect my man? Yeah, you know how hard it is to love unconditionally when you're getting nagged? I mean, both of them, let's just chalk it up and say, both of them need the grace of God to get accomplished. But the husband's job is to love. The wife's job is to respect. Ladies, you want your man to be the very best man? You show him unconditional respect. Husbands, you want your wife to blossom? You show them unconditional love in a way that they understand it and they will blossom and bloom. A wife can either break a man or build him up. I'm dealing with a young preacher boy who believes he's called to pastor, but he cannot because his wife disqualifies him. She's not ready. She's got issues. She's got spiritual issues. And if he was to go into the ministry, she would kill him. I meant kill him spiritually, and she would die spiritually, and it would be a train wreck. And we're working with him, and he's trying to have the patience to go on. But a wife can make or break you. Now, before we harass um, Job's wife, I don't think she's a bad wife. You say, but she just said, curse God and die. Yes, I want you to realize she has suffered everything Job has suffered. She lost her finances. She lost her, her wealth. She lost her children. Those were all hers, and she needs that security. But what makes it worse, she's not suffering, but she's watching her husband suffer. And it is out of love and mercy, she says, curse God and die. She says, God, just curse God, yell at him and allow him to kill you so you don't suffer anymore. I don't want to see you to suffer like this anymore. Now, she's speaking foolishly without regard to God in her mind, but she's doing it because she loves her husband and she can't stand to see him suffer like this anymore. But Satan is using her 
Now, it's not because she's filled with Satan or anything, but he's using her to be a discouragement to her husband to try to get her husband to finally curse God and die. Remember, spiritual warfare will always go to the head of the household, and if it can't hit the head of the household, it will go to the weaker vessel, which is the wife. And if it can't hit the wife, it will go to the children. And it will keep trickling down until Satan can get someone to disrupt that home. Anyways, going back here. So, the wife is being used, but it still doesn't cause him to curse God and die. So, Satan brings Job's friends, which is the next thing, the friends. Now, this is always interesting. Notice, if you wouldn't mind, as we introduce these friends in verse number 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that came upon him, they came everyone from his own place. Eliaphaz, the Timonite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together. Now, we're going to hit that again. To come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, again because of his disease, they lifted up their voice and wept and rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads towards the heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and none spake a word unto him for they saw that his grief was very great. So these three friends make an appointment and they said, Hey, did you hear about Job? Yep. All right, let's meet together. And we'll go visit him. Now, some time has passed because they didn't have cars and everything else. They had to get the news and they made an appointment. They met together and then they traveled together to go meet Job. And so they sit down and they didn't recognize him because of his disease. And they saw him and they wept and they're brokenhearted. And they sit there for seven days and seven nights. No one's saying a thing. They're just sitting there. Finally, Job begins to speak in chapter 3 and he's saying that he wished he wasn't alive. He starts saying how bad he's hurting. By the way, there, Job is not cursing God when he's doing this. He's just saying, I'm hurting. I wish." Have you ever been sick where you wish you weren't alive anymore or in that much pain? He's just expressing how he's feeling. He's not cursing God. He's not saying God is bad for this. He's just saying this is horrible. But I want to show how Satan is involved. In chapter 4, Eliaphaz begins to speak. And Eliaphaz is the first of the friends to speak. And he says, you know what, Job? I figured out your problem. Isn't it always funny how the friends figured out our problems? I figured out your problem, Job, and I got the answer. Now I want you to see where he gets his answer. Notice, if you wouldn't mind, in verse number 12. Now, this is where things get spooky, all right? Maybe that'll get some of your attention, but notice this, verse 12. Now, notice he says, this is how I got this answer. Now, a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me, and trembling, which made my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up, and it stood still. But I could not discern the form thereof, and the image was before mine eyes, and there was silence. And I heard a voice saying, Shall a mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Now let me tell you what he sees. He sees in today's vernacular a ghost. Now let me tell you right now, ghosts are not real. You know what this is? This is Satan playing tricks. 
There is a spiritual world out there and it is real and it's legitimate and you need to stay away from it if you're a born again Christian. You don't need to be messing with any of that stuff. Let me tell you, it is evil and it is wicked and it is very much real. And by the way, Satan excels at spiritual experiences. If he can give someone a spiritual experience, people will trust that experience more than the Bible. Have you ever argued with someone who spoke in tongues? You say, but it's not biblical. I know it's true because I did it. They base their experience higher than the Bible. Satan will major in experiences. He will give you a spiritual experience. And this man, he saw a ghost. I mean, I don't think I would trust something that came to me in the middle of the night and I couldn't see the form thereof. And when I saw it, my bones begin to shake and the hair begin to stand on my head. And he says, let me tell you what's wrong with Job. Job thinks he's better than God. I don't think I would trust that. But he took this vision. He said, oh, it was such a real experience. I knew I saw it. He did see it. But this is Satan working. And so remember, him and his friends made an appointment. So they get together. And Eliaphaz tells his friends, he says, I know exactly what's wrong with Job. A spirit came in the middle of the night. He told me exactly what it is. Here's the problem. Job has sin in his life. And if he just gets the sin out of his life, God would bless him. Now, that sounds good theologically. I mean, you know, they say God's too good to make bad things happen to someone. God's too good to allow someone to go through hard times. I mean, that sounds good, but it's not theologically correct. But they come to him and say, you know what? If we can convince Job that he has some sin in his life, some great sin, and if he would just get it right that God would make it better, we would help Job out. Now, remember... Job has done nothing wrong. Now, that doesn't mean he's not a sinner. It just means he doesn't have any open, unconfessed sin. There's nothing in his life that that is grossly wrong. And so they come and they begin to encourage Job. Job, just get right. Just whatever that sin is in your life, just get over it, confess it, and God would bless you again. And they get into argument, they get into discussion, they go through three rounds of discussions on this very subject where all three of these friends accuse Job and Job says, hey, I'm a sinner, I admit that, but there's no unconfessed sin, I haven't done anything wrong. And they say, oh, you've got to do what you see. You're either saying, Job, you're either saying you're right and God's wrong or you're wrong and God's right. That's not the case. Do you know in the Bible there's at least seven different things that say why bad things happen? Now get this, because some people think that bad things happen, it's because of punishment. That's not always the case. We understand that there is some discipline. There are some times that bad things happen to course correct us, to keep us away, to correct our behavior. That's a good thing from the Lord, but that's because of this. We understand there's consequences for sin. Sometimes we do things and there's consequences. Sometimes someone else does something and there's consequences because of their behavior. You know, sometimes it's just because we're in a broken world. We live in a broken world and our bodies are deteriorating and we're going to have genetical problems. And you know what? This world is awful and sometimes it affects us. Just because we're Christians, God doesn't place us in a bubble and protect us from the world's consequences and the world falling apart. 
Another reason why bad things happen according to the Bible is persecution for Christ. The Bible makes a promise, yea, that all those that will live godly shall suffer persecution. That's just as much as a promise as John 3.16. If you plan on living godly, guess what? You will suffer persecution. Now in America, we don't have it as much as everywhere else, but that's still a promise. Sometimes bad things happen because you're doing the right thing, the Bible says. You know, the Bible talks about another reason why bad things happen is because it's refining. He's trying to make us more like Christ. We've hit that earlier, Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.29, that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are thee called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his firstborn. So that sometimes things happen to make us more like Christ, to mold us and to make us, to refine us. Sometimes bad things happen to test us, to see if we're still going to be faithful. And then sometimes bad things happen because of God's glory. Maybe he allows something to happen so we can witness to something or to be a testimony or so others can see how we trust God and they can get saved. We don't know. That's what we have to say. We don't know. It's not right for you to go into the hospital and take someone's appendix and say, you know what this is? This is your tithes and offerings and God is getting it back one way or another. All right, that's not the way to do it. We just need to be an encouragement. But they come with an with an agreement and they say if we can just convince Job to say that he sinned and just to get right with God all of this will get better now this is a discouragement have you ever had a friend that you've tried to talk and they just won't understand it'll make you feel like cursing after that wouldn't you I mean come on guys and they do it for chapter after chapter after chapter they record their conversation and they continue to go on all the way up from chapter, uh, excuse me, from chapter number 4 all the way up to chapter number 31. That's a lot of talking where they're going back and forth saying, Job, just get right. I am right. Just stop. No, Job, get right. You think they would just learn, but they're trying to pound it. Well, after that doesn't work, what happens is that there's a young little preacher boy who gets involved. Notice if you wouldn't mind in chapter number 32. told you we're doing a survey of this. So they go round and round. Job answers their questions. They give it more of a statement. He answers and they go back and forth. And Job is still saying, God's still good. He's still right. I'm right as far as I can tell. There's no unconfessed sin. And they're like, you have to be. Otherwise, you're just saying God is not good. He is good. Don't you listen to me? God is still good. Well, after this, they can't say anything. They've talked out. This has gone on for a while. And somehow, a young preacher boy tagged along. Job had three friends. And this fourth little preacher boy, that's what I call him. He's probably a freshman in Bible college somewhere. Because once you get a little bit of knowledge, you become very, very dangerous. And freshmen in Bible college know everything. They've solved every theological argument. You just give someone a little bit of Bible. And they'll take that pride and they will try to course correct everyone. They will tell everyone what they're doing wrong, what they're saying wrong, how to fix it. Well, this guy guy has got here, notice chapter number 32. We see the know-it-all, the know-it-all. So after the five round of speeches, he gets up 
verse number 1, chapter 32. So the three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So the reason why they're not talking no more, fine, he just thinks he's all right and perfect. We just, we can't say anything anymore. We can't convince him. Well, it's because there's nothing wrong. Verse number 2. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachiel, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. And against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they found no answer, yet they condemned God. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Brachiel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young. Now, let me pause here. Whenever someone starts getting angry, pride is involved. Here's this guy, he's got the answers and he's listening to these old people talk. And they've talked and they talked and they talked. And they didn't give any answers and he's been welling up. By the way, if you're thinking of an answer when someone's speaking and not listening... He's been listening and not listening to the words they've been saying. Finally, it's been welling up in him. That's what he actually says. It's welling up in me. Now, I want you to see all the personal pronouns that he says. This is that mark of pride. And verse number six. And Elihu, the son of Brachiel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and does not show you mine opinion. I says, they should speak and multitudes of years should teach wisdom. But the spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty that given them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore, I said, hearken to me and I will show my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear for your reasons. Why ye searched out what to say. Yea, I attended to you. And behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or answered his words. Lest ye shall say, we have found out wisdom. God thrust him down, not man. Now he had not directed this words against me. Neither will I answer him with your speeches. They were amazed and they answered no more. They left off speaking. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more, I said, I will answer also in my part. I will show mine opinion, for I am full of the matter, and the spirit within me constraineth me. Behold, my belly is as wise a wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst out like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips to answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let him give flattering titles to men. For I know not to give flattering titles. In doing so, my maker would also take me away. Man, he didn't even start answering. He just talked about how much he knew. So he gets this young freshman in college, this young preacher boy, this person who just got a little bit of Bible knowledge and just listen to this guy just talk about I, 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 me, me, me. Let me show you how wise and how great I am. Here, listen, old men, sit down. I thought you guys knew something. Now let me teach you something here. Man, he's just full of pride. This is not going to help the argument at all. And he goes on for five chapters talking about how he thinks he knows the answer and these old men don't know what's going on. He's full of pride. Finally, God has enough. And we go to the questions. Now we go to school here. Notice in chapter number 38. So from chapter 32 to 37, we have Elihu, the young preacher boy, the man full of pride, trying to give the answers. Now finally, God 
has enough and says, all right, I've listened, I've endured, I've heard all of you speak. Notice the words that God says in chapter number 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, let's pause here. If a tornado came and started talking to you, you'd probably listen too. Verse number two, who is it that darketh my counsel or darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Ouch. He said, who's all these people that keep talking? I think he's talking to the preacher boy here, the man full of pride. Who's the guy who darkeneth counsel with all these words? You've said all these words and you said nothing and you've made things worse. He says, gird up thy loins now like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thee. He says, listen closely. I'm going to take you to school and there's a test immediately afterwards. Pay attention. Wherefore was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Question mark. God begins to answer questions and the answer to all those questions is going to be God. God is going to answer 84 questions by my count. I could be a little bit off. 84 questions where he starts talking about God, God, God and that these people know nothing. He says, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? It's a good question. Was you there when he laid the foundations of the earth? No. Declare thou if I, thou hast understanding. you understand what I'm telling you? Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who hath stretched the line upon it? Basically, who's ever measured the universe? Have you ever measured out, took that tape measure, and said, hold it here and go to the other side? God says, I know how big it is. Verse number um, 6 Whereupon are the foundations thereof found? So, in the foundations of the world, how's everything fastened together? How's it not flying apart? Who hath stretched the line upon it? Um, uh, where are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors, and when it break forth as if it issued out of the womb? And he goes on and starts saying things. Uh, and starts explaining. Notice, if you wouldn't mind, verse 16. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? We didn't even know there were springs into the sea until 1977. We're still discovering the science in Job. But God says, hey, you know where the springs of the sea? They're like, what is that? And it goes on in 84 questions. He talks about electricity. He talks about astronomy. He talks about all kinds of scientific things. He talks about dinosaurs. He says, what about this dinosaur here? And what about this dinosaur here? We'll get into that some other day. And he asks all these questions. And again, the answer to all those questions is God, 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 God. With the point, the idea that these guys who said they have all this knowledge... God is saying, listen here, I am God. You don't know why this is going on. And I'm tired of you talking about it. Just shut up and acknowledge that I'm God. All right, that's my version of it. But I'm sure the tone was there that the idea, shut up, listen, I am God. And there is none else. So let's see how the answer. Let's see how Job does on this test. Notice chapter 42. The last chapter, chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord. Now remember, 84 questions. Now notice how Job answers. So Job finally gets to answer. Here's the test. Gets pencils out. Ready? Start the timer. He's going to answer. What is it? I know that thou can doest everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore I have uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thee. Thou to me. He's repeating God's thing. God, he says, God you asked me this question. Let me tell you what the answer is. Verse number 5. The thing I heard of thee by hearing of my ear, but now I see. He said, I always believe you're good, but now I see it. Verse number uh, 6, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I hate myself. He says, I see myself as nothing. I see you, God, high, holy, and lifted up, and I see myself and I see I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Because you're God. You see, God has spoken to all these people for the purpose of letting them see God is worthy of worship at all times. That's the whole thing. God is worthy of worship. And we see the answer. Now, did he answer well? We see now the prayer, verse 7. And it was so, after the Lord had spoken the words to Job, the Lord said to Eliaphaz, the Temite, My wrath is kindled against thee. Ooh, can you imagine? He was just trying to be a help to Job by getting his vision and reporting what was happening. He was honestly trying to be a blessing. But he stirred up God's wrath because God was on trial, by the way. But God was angry because this man had spoken without having knowledge. Didn't understand the full story. And my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has. Therefore take you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer your up yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. He says, I don't even want you to pray for me right now or pray for yourselves. I want you to go to Job and I want you to him to pray for you. Why? Because Job's right with God right now. He's hurting. He's miserable. Now, I want to remind you, his health is still failing at this point. At this time, his children are still dead. At this time, his finances are still gone. At this time, the discouragements are still in place. But yet Job is able to pray to God. Why? Because God is worthy of worship, whether good things are happening or bad things are happening. God is still good and God is still right. He can still see the truly the goodness of God and who he is. And so Job did pray for his friends. And they went and did and he prayed for them. And God ended up blessing Job because of it. Which brings me to the last thing, the blessing. Notice verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now, Job had to humble himself and pray for his friends. In the midst of pain, in the midst of heartaches, he prayed for others and God blessed him for that. And gave Job twice as much as he had before. Notice that word twice. And it came unto him all of his brethren, his sisters, that they had came, uh, that had been his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And every man gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. If you go back to Job 1, you see all of this is doubled. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 12,000 yoke of oxen, and 12,000 she-asses. Notice verse 13. And he had seven sons and three daughters. You say, wait a second. God doubled everything else, but he had seven before, and he had seven after. You know why? Because the other ones were in eternity already. They're somewhere alive at that time. 
And so he had seven in heaven and seven on earth. He still had them all, just in different locations. God still doubled his children as well. God is so good and God is so right. And he went and extended his life. He doubled his years. Job was 70 before, and he died at 140 years, doubling his life. And God blessed him because of this. Now again, Job was not on trial. Some people would like to say that the book of Job asks and answers the question, why do the righteous suffer? That question is not answered, and God makes it very clear. You don't know the reason why people suffer. You don't know why bad things happen all the time. There's a whole list of reasons. It's not just because of sin. It's not just because of this or that. You may not know until you get to the other side of glory why something tragic happened. But what we do know is that God is always good, and God is always right. And the true question of Job, is God worthy of our worship when bad things happen? Now, it's one thing to read about it in the Bible, and it's one thing to think about some man on trial. But what if Satan was to use you as evidence? When you had that bad time this week, was you an example Or was Satan waiting for you? He said, oh, something bad's happening. God, see, they're not worshiping you. Look, God, they said that you're bad for allowing it to happen. You're not worthy of worship. You know, that's what Satan does. He accuses the brethren. He's standing before God looking for opportunities to tell God that he is not good. And he uses us as evidence. Look, they said that they're Christians. They say they go to church, but look at how they're whining and they're complaining and they're not thankful. They don't see all that you're doing, God. <laughs> you're not right. You're not worthy of their worship. It's a convicting thought, isn't it? That there's a spiritual world outside of our little box. And we have the forces of Satan who are watching us. And they're keeping a tally. And they're just looking for an opportunity to accuse God by our actions. By saying God is not good and God is not right. You know, we talk about sometimes about maybe suffering well for a testimony to others. But that's a side thing. It's all about God. Is God right? Is God good? When your finances are bad, is God right? Is God good? When your family has fallen apart, is God still good? Is God still right? When health problems come, when death comes in a family, is God still good? Is God still right? You see, the whole thing is all about God. It is not about us. We need to be a people who believe it to be true. Just like Job said. He said, I heard about it before, but now I see it. I know it to be true. God is still good, and God is still right. Because God is God, and He is worthy of all our worship, all of our attention, all of our praise. God is a good God. So once again, how's your complaining? How's your moaning? How is your belittling of things and saying it's not right it should happen it's not fair you know adults are probably worse at saying it's not fair than children are we have different ways of saying it 
It shouldn't have happened to me. You know what you're saying? God wasn't good. God wasn't right. Is God good? Is he still good? You say, but I don't understand why it happened. If God was so good, he wouldn't have let it happen. You don't know why it's happening. I wish I did. I wish I could be a great comforter and tell you exactly why this is happening and this is happening. I could tell you reasons from the Bible and say, good luck in picking one. But when it's all said and done, we don't know. And God was very (laughs) clear in saying, you don't know. But the idea is, even if we don't know, is God still good and is God still right? 